You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. going to get into the Word of God this morning, and we are continuing our series entitled, This is Reality. And it's a six-week series. We're taking six Sundays to highlight some of the things that are most important to us as a church and that we highly value and strive to live out as much as we can. Um, And we want to do this for a few reasons. One is to remind those that have been here for years and to really share what what we're about or what are the things that drive us and make us up. What's the skeleton, so to speak, um, that, that is directing us, that's driving us. And if you're brand new, obviously, this is like what we're about. There's more than these six Sundays, but these are pretty core to who we are, what makes us tick, what we believe in, and how these things practically play out week in and week out. Um, But before I kind of recap last week and jump into today's topic, um, join with me in asking God to show up and speak to us today. God, thank you so much for what you are doing in our midst, in and through this family. Thank you, God, for the ways that you provided and used us. And today, right now, we sit ourselves under your word and we ask by the power of your spirit that you would speak to us. God, we want to hear your voice. We want to be led by you, we want to be encouraged by you. We ask that your word would equip us, you would train us, you'd correct us. God, we ask that you'd have your way in this next 30 or so minutes. Um, We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So yeah, last week we started our series by laying the groundwork for all that's to come with speaking on the Word of God. That's what we looked at last week, was the Word of God, the Bible, Scripture, God's Word. We did this because that is, God's Word is the foundational element that we derive really everything from. Um, It's our guide, it informs us, on who God is and who we are in light of that, uh, how we should live, really everything. It's our plumb line, our lie detector, all of it, all that we do, we strive, we hinge on the Word of God and we try to be led and directed and check what we're doing and, and all the things by the Word of God. And we strive to be students of it and we pray that we as a church would become students and we would desire that all of us would know God intimately by knowing his word well, Um, which brings us to today. I think it ties in pretty well. We are going to be looking at the subject or the topic of worship. I did the word of God last week and today the second topic we as a church want to focus on and share about is worship. Uh, In a very general sense, right, very broad and maybe simply put, Right, to worship is to ascribe worth to uh, or to value, to esteem, 
to exalt, to glorify, or give glory to. Right? So you can really worship anything. Uh, and much of humanity does. Worship, or you could say idolize, another similar term, many things. Um, not just God, right? The whole world in one way or another. Um, Worship success, money, status, a person, a lot of different things we as humans can worship, we can idolize, we can exalt in our life. But looking at Scripture and what we believe by God's design and in right living, the only thing or better, the only person or object that we should worship in this way is God, the God of the Bible. Right? The creator God, the savior and redeemer of the world. Like that should be, God is to be the only object of our affection and our attention in this way of worship. And if you're taking notes, um, here's like insert this quote to remember. If you're taking notes, it's that we worship God for who he is and what he's done for us. Right? If we ever have trouble remembering why it is that we worship, we're going to talk about how we worship in a little bit, but if we ever forget, why are we worshiping? Why is my life supposed to be worship unto God? Why am I singing this song? It's because we worship who God is and what he's done for us. And here's what's important. The thing is, we only worship what we know to be valuable and worthy of our worship, of our adoration, of our exaltation. Right? We only worship things that are valuable, that we put, you know, in our, in our heads, that's worthy of worship. That said, the Christian's worship, the worship unto God by the follower of Jesus it's only true worship when we have a true and correct view and understanding of who God is. Does that make sense? Like, right, if, if we don't really know who God is and we aren't really aware who he is and why he's valuable and why he's worthy of worship, then it's going to be a little hard for us to engage in the worship of God if we truly don't know why he's valuable, why he is worthy of worship. So how do we know God? It goes back to last week, right? Through his word. Right? If we, if, if, we, if we fail to do that, or if we just go off what people tell us, or maybe, you know, a lot of us have an upbringing of going to some sort of Catholic or Christian church perhaps, we have maybe an understanding of who God is, but haven't really read the word of God for ourselves, it's going to be a little hard to really grasp who God is, what he did, and why he is worthy of worship. But again, the word of God is how we know who God is. God is revealed to us through it, through his written word. It could be said this way. Christian worship could be defined as a response to revelation. Meaning it is the word of God which evokes the worship of God. They go hand in hand. The word of God is, is that revelation. And then 
worship becomes the response to that understanding of who God is. Again, of course, in addition to the Word of God, for those of us that do know Jesus, we all do have like our personal encounters with Him, right? We all hold a personal testimony and witness of God's work and goodness in our own lives. It's in addition to His Word, but we all do. For those of us that call ourselves Christian, we have a testimony. God has worked in our lives which absolutely will also lead us to worship, right? To thank God, to adore Him, to exalt Him because He's been good to us, right? He's saved us. He's redeemed us. He's healed me. He's restored me. I have the hope of heaven. Like, these are the reasons why we worship God. But the primary way that we know God and why it is important and why, he, why he's worthy of worship is through his word. And as one of my favorite uh, 20th century pastors and modern day prophets, if you haven't read anything by this guy, you need to. His name is A.W. Tozer. Um, if you just want to get like the cliff notes of Tozer, there's this book called Gems from Tozer, Gems of Tozer. It's like a little book and it has all his best quotes in one. Gems of Tozer, cliff note Tozer. But anyway, in God's word, we find out, as A.W. Tozer puts it, he says this, Jesus was born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, died on the cross, and rose from the grave to make worshipers out of rebels. He has done it all through grace, and we are the recipients. I love specifically that idea that what Jesus did was make worshipers out of rebels. See, not only, right, if, if we actually believe what Scripture says, and this is what we put our hope and trust in, not only do we know that we're miraculously created by God, right, the very air in our lungs that we're breathing out and the blood that's circulating in our bodies right now that's keeping us living and sustaining of life daily is from God. Like he is the creator and sustainer of life. And that alone <laughs> that we're living should give us plenty reason to worship. And if that wasn't enough, while we were in rebellion, God created us miraculously. While we were in rebellion, in sin, disobedient to God, selfish rebels to God. What did God do? He stepped into our world in the person of Jesus and he died our death to save and redeem us, right? To give us all brand new life, a second chance, we're born again, abundant life now, and life eternal to hope for. So not only are we created, but now there's double the reason to worship, right? What Christ did is transform us from rebels of God to worshipers of God. You see that? Like, not only is it miraculous that God created us and He holds, He gives us the breath that we're breathing right now, but even in our sin, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gave His life for us so that we could be brought back into right relationship with our Father. It's double the reason to worship. But here's what's so incredible about worship. 
It's that it can be, and it should be strived to be done in actually all areas of our life. I think for many of us, when we see a topic like worship, uh, this is what we think of. We either think of what we just did by singing songs in church, or maybe it's like listening to the new Hill song on your way to work on the H1, and you're just trying to get yourself in a good mood and worship so you don't have a bunch of road rage on the way to work. Right? We think of like musical worship as worship. That's worship. That's the majority of our worship. But worship is actually so much more. It's actually much more encompassing and holistic than just musical worship. Just songs, just singing, just lyrics. It's those things, but a lot more. And for the sake of time and just today's application, right, there's been like books and volumes of books about worship. Um, but if we were to boil down worship into three areas, and if you're taking notes, I have three points for you. Um, but if we were to boil down into three areas in which we see Scripture lead us, and as a church, we strive to live into this, is this. These are the three points. We worship with our lives. We worship with our stuff, and we do also worship with our praise. We're going to look at those three. We worship with our lives, we worship with our stuff, and we worship God with praise, with music. So let's briefly uh, look at these three. Uh, one of the texts, the first one, we worship with our lives. One of the texts that sheds light is in Paul's letter, the Apostle Paul. He writes a letter to the church in Rome, right? Christians in Rome. Um, when he does this at that time, some 2,000 years ago, um, where it was, it was foreign, it was frowned upon and even persecuted to live for God, to be a Christian in that environment, Paul writes this exhortation to the Christian in the 12th chapter of his letter. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Um, even though it was written to them for us to today. It says this, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he's done for you. Let them, your body, be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn and know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So as, as Paul puts it, he says, let your life. Actually, he says, like, let your body. Let, like what consists of your body, your mind and your heart and your soul and let your life be a living form of worship. And even the wordage Paul uses in verse 1 there, give your bodies to God, is actually speaking of a holistic, transformed, and surrendered life to God being an act of worship. So the idea there is that like our speech, our thoughts, our actions, the words uh, that we use and say to people should all 
be ascribing glory and giving God worship. So in other words, uh, the way we talk, think, and act can all be used actually as worship. So it's not even necessarily like, you know, in church, Sunday morning, 10 a.m., that's when I worship. It's actually this broader, holistic, 24-7 thing where God's like, the wholeness of your life can actually be in worship to me. So, and it's worship then uh, that these things can can honor God and glorify Him. So a, a simple test if we're doing this or not, could be something like this, right? If you want to know how much of my life is worshiping God with my speech and actions, you could say something like this. A simple test would be asking yourself these questions. Rhetorically, ask yourself. Would the way I speak to and about others honor God? I know, convicting, but in a good way. Because... The way in which we speak to and about others should be honoring to God. Because it can be a form of worship. Another question would be is, this digs a little deeper, a little bit more of a secret space. Does my thought life, the things that no one else know, does my thought life honor God and line up with what is righteous and holy? Because again, our thought life, even the things that we don't show people, no one knows, God's like, even your thought life is meant to worship me and honor me. Last question would be something like, does the way I treat people model how Christ would treat people? Again, I don't don't know if we always go through our weeks asking ourselves this. That's why the beauty of Sunday is the Word of God and the Spirit of God allows us to grow. But again, the entirety of our being is to be worshiping God. When God made rebels into worshipers, that's the wholeness of us. It's not just our speech and our song on Sundays, but it's it's all the places that are outside of Sundays. It's the Monday morning emails and all the mundane paying of bills and how you interact with whoever lives in your house. And these are, these are the opportunities, I would say, to worship. Again, we might not think that way, but I, I believe that that's what Paul's getting to. See, in, he's pleading with this Christian church about worship, and he doesn't even talk about musical worship in a church setting. He's talking all about, like, give your whole body to the worship of God. So that's one. We worship God with our lives. Number two is we worship with our stuff, our resources, our things, right? We have this understanding from the the broad theme of Scripture uh, of this, that all that each of us have isn't actually our own, but it's all been given by God. And that rather than being the owners of all our own stuff, Scripture would say that actually it's all God's and He's actually just entrusted us, all of us, to be stewards of His stuff. Even if it's like, no, 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 I got the degree, I got the job, I make the money. Well, who's even giving you the breath? 
the ability, the mind, the, the money, the resources, the opportunity, it's all God. It's all God's grace and all his goodness that he gives us everything. How'd you get the promotion? Oh, I worked hard. Nope, God is the ultimate one that gave you that. That's what we believe of Scripture, that we're actually not owners of anything but stewards. We're entrusted to steward what God has given us. And on top of that, one of the main things we see in Scripture is that the way in which God moves in the world, right? If you were going to ask, how does God move? How does his kingdom come? How does he save? How does he redeem? How does he restore? How does he heal? How does he do this among individual people and families and towns and cities and ultimately the world? You know how he does it? Through his people. He chooses to use you and I. Broken and imperfect and sinners saved by grace. I don't know about you, but many times I've questioned God's motives in that. I've questioned his idea. God, are you sure you want to use your people? You sure you don't want to just do it? I don't know if you've been honest with yourself, but when God uses you, right, I often, I often think, wow, God, I cannot believe that you choose to use me to see your kingdom come. But over and over, that is what scripture shows us, that he uses people like you and I, not some super holy, gone to seminary, you know, been a Christian for so long, is that he uses ordinary people that are messed up and imperfect to see his kingdom come. And you look at every work of God from the Bible to now, the way in which he's used his followers is through their time, through their abilities, through their possessions, through their houses, their money. That's the way, practically, God uses people through like practical things. And if you look back at the last two millennia, right, Christians, our family, brothers and sisters before us that have followed Jesus, they've given themselves and their stuff that they've been entrusted with to the work of God. And it's been an act of worship. It's an act of exaltation and adoration unto God. Because here's the deal. When we give these type of things to God, our time, our talent, and our treasure, our money, our resources, our stuff, our possessions, when we give these things to the work of God, this is what we're actually saying with that action, is that God, you're more important than this stuff. And I'm choosing to give up what the world actually says, hold on to. Right? The, the world would say, don't give it away. Hold as much as you can on. Get as much as you can. Worship those things. Adore. Idolize. Get as much as you can, however you can. So when we give unto God these things in any form, it's choosing to give up what the world says we should worship so that God can be worshipped and even others can worship God in addition because people are getting saved and redeemed and more people are coming to know the Lord and so actually more worship 
is potentially happening through, again, the worship of God through our things. And so like for us as a church, like for an example here, as a super practical one, that's why like we view our giving as not another announcement, but actually as an act of worship, right? We, we see that in the scripture, like our tithes and our offerings that we all give to the church or any church or any part of God's kingdom, we see that as an equal facet of the musical worship. Not a secondary or different or just part of an announcement or just like asking for money. But we actually see it as part of the way in which we can worship God. So to leave in, you know, a little bit of like application real quick, something we can think about and pray about for each of us is not just about whether you tithe or not or why it is you do or don't, but broaden that out a little bit, is what do we do with all our stuff? Our time and talent and treasure that we have. Are we even thinking? Are we even thinking this way? Or asking ourselves the question, are we worshiping God with the things he's entrusted us with? Or not? And again, this is whether you have a little or have much. All of us have some time, some talent, some treasure, some of it's across the board on how much of that, depending on our lives. But have we, like, thought about it that way? Have we, if you share stuff with a spouse or with family, have you ever talked about it that way? Even if you're just making ends meet, have you thought of, okay, what? Everything I have is a gift from God, and all that I have is supposed to be worshiped to him. So even just asking and praying about that, right, might be, might be new to you. But I challenge you to do so. And lastly, for time's sake, is what we usually go to first, and that's worship as praise. Right? We worship with praise, with music, with lyrics, with song. Um, again, if, if you read scripture, it's all over the place that one of the main ways we respond to God in worship, especially and important to note in community, is by instruments and voices. Like you cannot read the Bible without oftentimes seeing the church gathering and responding to God in worship by having a whole bunch of instruments and a whole bunch of voices together in one place. With music, with song, declaring the attributes of God out loud in word and to usher in praise with music. Um, throughout the Old Testament, this is done just in about, just about every setting. Oh, no problem. Happens. Um, we are a dog-friendly church. Sometimes that happens. Just like we're kid-friendly and you'll hear other noises sometimes. Um, but all throughout the Old Testament... The worship of God is done just in about every setting. It's in the wilderness, it's in the tabernacle, it's in the temple, like you name it, with a lot of people, with a little people, with many instruments, with not as many, like the worship of God is done. Again, it doesn't have to be the right environment, like I'm just thinking of uh, right after the Israelites crossed, you know, the Red Sea. They just escaped Pharaoh, and the first thing they do, like, I'm just thinking in the Sinai Desert, 
They just witnessed the Red Sea parting and the whole Egyptian army. And like two and a half million Israelites are like, I can't believe that happened. I'm hungry and thirsty and I'm in the brutal sun. What do they do? They worship their God. Like I think it's Exodus 15. Is the entire thing is corporate worship. Right in the Old Testament, over and over, the tabernacle, the temple, the wilderness, when, for who God is and what he's done, the people of God got together and they sung and they played instruments to worship God. In the New Testament, we see it a bit different. I got a little bit more urban, right? Uh, they moved into rooms and homes and into churches in cities. But it doesn't matter, Old Testament, New Testament. Each of these were done primarily in community, gathered and together. And throughout all of this, we see this beautiful, wonderful, and miraculous thing that happens when the church does that. And it's, again, it's not just when the lights are low. It's not just when there's different color lights or there's a good sound system, right? It's not just when it's perfect. It's in hot upper rooms, 120 people in a room. This sounds miserable. That's when the Holy Spirit showed up and was given to the church. Right? You think of the, like the Sinai Desert. You're like, that's not a fun place to worship. But once again, throughout all of these beautiful, wonderful times of worship, what we see happening is that the manifest presence of God actually like fills spaces and meets people. And people have tangible encounters with the living God in worship. You cannot escape that in the Bible. And we see this type of thing talked about like chapter after chapter in the book of Psalms. And one verse in particular that tells us specifically what is happening is Psalm 22 verse 3. It says, God actually inhabits the praises of his people. He dwells with. When the church gathers and engages in musical worship, God actually draws near and his manifest presence actually dwells with us. That is one of the main reasons why we spend half of our Sunday service, beginning and end, is inviting God's presence here by spending time in musical praise and worship. It's not just like buffers or like bookends or... Somehow we just made it up. It's that we know that God dwells with his people when they worship. And so we want to invite the presence of God into the space, the physical space that we are gathering in. And I don't know about you. I don't know your experience with worship or your Christianity or your Christian walk. But for me, over the course of my time knowing Jesus, times of worship have been some of the most powerful encounters I've had with the grace and goodness of God. And they've been in different settings and at different times with different people and different amount of people. And, but it's the times in musical worship that I truly have experienced the powerful, tangible presence of God. I think many of you would testify the same. Um, and as a church, what we pray for and desire most is that for God's presence to be here and that all of us would meet and commune with him. 
Like that's our prayer, is that all of us would encounter the living God in our times of worship. But I do believe one of the barriers of us experiencing and knowing this um, can be this sometimes. And maybe I'm speaking to you. Right? Depending on your comfortability in these corporate times of worship, right? Especially um, maybe like the lights are on in here. We, sorry, we cannot turn off the lights because turning off the light means closing the windows. And then it becomes the Sinai Desert with no air in coronavirus. Cannot do it. Um, but depending on your comfortability in these corporate settings, right, especially because it's light in here, you may feel like people are watching or whatever. And it can possibly keep you from these personal encounters in worship. I know for me, like I grew up with like every single worship time, it was a dark room. Unless it was like at a camp or something or, you know, in someone's living room. But even then, we would turn the lights low. That's just my experience. So I've had to overcome that as well. Just in a lit room, it's changed because you're like, you know? I don't know about you, but I think possibly sometimes we can get caught up with what people are thinking and possibly hinder these personal encounters in worship. Uh, one quote that I love which speaks to some of this is from British pastor and theologian John Stott in his book, The Living Church, which, which says this. The way in which we worship God corporately should have freedom and difference in expression. Take Psalm 95 as an example. It is an exhortation of the people of God to praise him but it contains an abrupt change of mood in the middle. The psalm begins with a call to sing for joy to the Lord and to shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Why? Because the Lord is the great God, the creator of earth and sea. But then in verse 6, the mood changes, and we are summoned to bow down and kneel before the Lord. Why? Because he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Thus, there is a place in public worship both for shouting aloud because he is the great God and for bowing down before him because he is God. This is what I love about this quote, is that there is comfort to it. What John Stott is alluding to here is that we should respond to God the way in which we should respond to God. Not caring about what everyone else thinks, not caring if the sound sounds the way or if there's a small band or a big band or if the lyrics are right or not or if it's light or dark. But rather, corporate musical worship is supposed to be a place where even though it's in corp a corporate setting, it's supposed to be personal in the fact that we need to know who God is and why we worship. And we're not ashamed or worried about others, but we engage in it. And again, engagement can look different. Eyes open, eyes closed, arm raised, arms not. Uh, kneeling on the carpets, shouting for joy. All is permissible and all is right and all is good, but all should be engaged with. But again, rather than concerning ourselves with 
who we're worshiping next to or what that person thinks. Rather, we should say, the very breath that I have, the very hope of heaven that I have is because of Christ, and because of that, I will worship my face off. I don't care who, I don't care if I have a good voice or not, I'm going to sing to the Lord because he is worthy. So to wrap this all up, to land the plane here, as a church, right, we love Jesus. We think he's the most incredible, wonderful, and amazing person and that he is worth following and giving your life to and he's more than worthy of our worship. And our heart and our prayer and our desire is that we would strive towards being a church that are worshipers of our great God with our lives, with our stuff, and with our praise. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word, the reminder of why it is that we worship even now as we continue with a few more songs of musical worship. God, I pray that you would help us to, maybe for some of us, think of it different for the first time. Or give us a greater understanding of why it is that we do worship you. But God, I pray for all of us that you would help us to move past, um, you would move us into to comfortability in expression to worship. That, there, that each of us on a really deep heart level would reflect upon and worship you for who you are and what you've done for us. So God, have your way with these next few songs of worship. We pray that you would be exalted and magnified and glorified in our midst. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.